0: All right, well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, Nehemiah chapter 8. If you've got anybody that is that is homesick and trying to watch the service today, the internet at the church isht kaput. Uh, it's not working, but we will be recording the service and uh, we'll upload it as soon as we uh, apparently get away from this uh, hotspot dead zone. Uh, but hopefully we'll have that fixed for next week. But this week it is out. as. Telling Jerry, like I got to church, and I always get to church early and get stuff done. My family and I just run around trying to get stuff, uh, and mostly chasing Peter. But I was on the phone for fifty-six minutes uh, this morning with AT and T, and I talked to someone from India, and I talked to someone from somewhere in Asia. Uh, but no one could no one could figure out just how to give me more data. That's all I needed was more data. But anyway, and so it was it was fun this morning. All right, so. What we're going to talk about today is worship in a post-Roe America, okay? The reason is this last week we had one of the most uh, momentous events in American history, the overturning of what could be considered the most heinous Supreme Court decision in American history. Uh, that decision was Roe versus Wade, a, a decision that had said that the Constitution protects the rights of women to Uh, to murder their babies and that states can't infringe upon that right, what they called a right to privacy. You remember this happened almost 50 years ago. It was constitutional nonsense then uh, and it was pure evil uh, from the beginning. But now that decision is gone. In a five to four uh, overturning by the Supreme Court, uh, that, that decision is no more. Now if you'll notice, I'm not saying worship in a post-abortion world. I'm saying worship in a post-Roe world because Roe Ro is currently dead. Uh, she has been made a footstool of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, that evil that, sa- that at least says that the federal government will protect your right to end uh, a baby's life, that decision is dead. That happened on Friday, June 24th. Uh, in our history, what might one day, as a history teacher, these sorts of things always interest me, that might one day be a day uh, where we talk about where it all started, the ball not only to end the the protection of abortion, but the outlawing of it. Uh, so that's what's going on in our nation. But today isn't that Friday. Today is Sunday, right? Today is not Row day, it's not post-row day, it's not any today. Is the Lord's day. And so the question is: we, we've had this moment that has sort of shaped our week. It's shaped the nation. It will shape the future of our nation for ill or for good. We, I mean, we popped fireworks, right? On on, on Friday. We we ate ice cream. We praised God. We repented of our nation's sins. We 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 sang praises to our Lord, we repented of sins past, we repented of sins current. But what do we do after that day? What does post-row worship look like? How do you, after events like that, what should your worship look like on the Lord's Day? What do you do on a Sunday after some sort of momentous decision like that? What does it look like to worship God when you recognize that your nation has been living and continues to live in grievous sin? The events of this week reminded me of events that took place after the people of God returned from exile in Babylon. Sorry, turn to Nehemiah 8. The nation, by God's grace, was destroyed, uh, but then sent into exile. Not totally destroyed, that's the grace of God. They weren't totally destroyed like they deserved. And after, like what happened uh, to Israel, I mean, remember Israel, Israel, when God judged Israel for their sin, Israel was destroyed. Israel and their ten tribes gone, forgotten, only to be remembered again, you know, almost 2,000 years later by Joseph Smith, who found them in North America, he said. Uh, but actually what happened is they were found by the Lord God, and they were snatched up and destroyed. Uh, but that's not what happened to Judah. Judah, because of their sins, they were sent into exile, but now they're back. And now they're back in the promised land attempting to rebuild something rebuilding the temple rebuilding the walls of the city so they've got this momentous event this 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 thing that has happened they recognize uh, their wickedness and this is going on. what do you do in terms of worship after days like that and so that's what uh, I wanted to, I was drawn to this to talk about because there's so many people in this world and on social media telling you how to think about various things, telling you how to process this, what you should do or not do, what your next step should be or shouldn't be, uh, and yet none of them are one of your pastors, uh, and some of them should not even be your Facebook friends. Uh, so uh, so what? what does the Bible tell us, what examples does it give in terms of, What do I do in worshiping the Lord after something like that? Because that's what our lives are about. Our lives aren't about political parties. Our lives aren't about who's on what court. Our lives aren't about who the next president is or who it was or anything like that. That's not, that's not what our lives are about. Our lives are about worship. Now, worship might involve what we do in all those things and our position in the government God has put us in in all those situations. But what do we do as Christians in worshiping God after an event like that? That's what I care about. And that's what I want to go to Scripture to see. How do God's people respond to events very similar to what we've had happen? And I think you'll see the similarities even more so as we move through the text. So Nehemiah chapter 8. Let's stand in the honor of reading God's Word. What does worship look like after great momentous days where you also recognize great sin, both past and in the presence of the men and the women, those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they would made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah uh, on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Mahjah, Hashum, Hashbadnah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherabiah, Jamin, Ahub, uh, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, God. And Lord, we recognize that. That Father, you are the reason for our existence, not anything going on in the world. But you, and so we want to read and understand everything in light of who you are. We want to make sure that you are our filter, that you are the one that we think about and that we seek to praise in every situation. So, Father, help us today as we gather together uh, after uh, a momentous day to say this is what worship looks like. God, we want to lift you up. We want to praise you above all things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Alright, so, as we're looking at this this story here and we're seeing what's going on, how do the people respond to this event? They're back from the exile, this has happened, it's a momentous day, the law of God is brought out, they begin to see things about their nation. How do they respond? The first thing that we're going to see they they do is they respond with repentance. They respond with repentance. Look at verse 9. Uh, And Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this holy, uh, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep. Why? For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So Ezra and the people gather, the word of the law is read, the priests help the people to understand the word, and what is the response of the people to the law of God? They weep. They weep. Why? Why why are they weeping? Because the people are realizing that they've been living in rebellion against... They've got us beat. They've been living in rebellion against God for centuries. For centuries. Dur- during this time, the people had been taking part in many sins, including child sacrifice, in this history. They're realizing that part of what they've gone through as exiles was because they deserved it. They're weeping because they're realizing that they deserve what they got. And as we look at the moral decay of America, the the weepning, the weakening of the home, the perverseness all around us, the confusion about everything that is not confusion at all—it is it is billed as confusion, but is really just rebellion. Then we look at those things and we say, "Why are these things happening? What's going on? Why why is America crumbling here and here and here? And why?" Why is our military, you know, why is the military putting out things like, you know, how to deal as a, as a naval soldier with transgender issues? Uh, why, why are once these bastions for our country? Why do they seem to be crumbling with the rest of it? Why are our churches being silent when the rest of the world is being so loud? Why instead of bowing the knee to Christ, are they bowing their knee to culture? And we want to know, why why is this happening to America? And the truth is, that the, the blood of millions of babies should wake us up and go, oh yeah. Oh yeah, maybe that's why these things are happening. And maybe, like the people of God in Nehemiah's day, what we should do is weep. I think one of the the saddest realities for the American Christian is how little we weep anymore over something like abortion. We get upset. We We get mad, as rightly you should. But often we don't weep anymore. I mean, even I. Who we'll get into these? Who, who 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 wants to do so much in ending abortion? Sometimes we can even forget that one of the things we need to do is just weep, weep for the sinfulness of our nation. Weep for where our nation is at and what they've done, and recognize what we deserve and what could happen to us at any moment as a country because of what we've done to our God, and what we've done to His image bearers. If as churches we were to end worship and walk outside and get an alert on all our phones saying, hey, Russians have launched 1,000 ICBMs against America, our systems were down due to some computer error from AT&T, and so they weren't able to respond back in kind, so America's about to be obliterated in about, oh, five minutes, that's all the time you've got, Uh, we thought we had a chance that NORAD was down, whatever, uh, and America's about to be destroyed, Christians should be able to look at each other and go, yeah, that's what we deserve. It's what America deserves for the, their sin, we can't say no. Don't deserve that, and that should cause us to weep. It should cause us to. It should cause us to weep. It should cause us to repent. Abortion statistics tell us that over 60 million babies have been murdered in the U.S. since 1973, and I think because that number doesn't include abortion, birth control, I think that number is exponentially lower than it should be. I think it's multitudes lower than it actually is. And I think that's the next thing the American church is going to wake up to. Is it 60 million ain't nothing compared to what it really is. So what sorts of things should we repent of? What sort of thing should we repent of? Is this? So this is this is coming out. The people of God saw the, the law of God. They recognize this. This moment is an opening of their eyes. We, as people, are seeing this. We're coming post Roe. It's this great moment that Roe is being footstooled. And so, what should we do? One thing we should do is we should repent. What sort of thing should American Christians confess? What sort of thing should we look at ourselves and say, "This is what I need to confess." In this. Well, one thing we as American Christians can confess is our ignorance. For 60 million babies being dead, a lot of us don't know very much about abortion other than whether we are for it or against it. We don't know, we don't know how, how it happens. We don't know what takes place. We don't know what's going on when the drugs are used. We don't know what practices are happening. We just know whether we're for it or against it. And that ignorance has caused us to be complicit in many ways. I mean, most Christians will admit that they didn't dig deep into what abortion was about until much later in their life. There are Christians who will tell you that they, that after Roe versus Wade in the 50s, they just, they didn't really know what abortion was. They didn't, they didn't immediately go and find out wait, what is this? What are they doing to babies? What's going on? Most Christians aren't aware even of things they, many continue to practice. Things like I said, like, like uh, birth control, being abortifacient. Most Christians don't even think about that reality. I mean, we're, often, we're ignorant of the fact that the pills we're prescribing to regulate our, our family planning are actually accomplishing the task that we say we're against when abortion happens. I mean, in in, in honesty, my my wife and I have had to repent that we have statistically probably aborted, what we we would classify as aborted, we don't know how many children by the birth control we took when we were first married because we didn't know anything about it. It's just what people did. Just took birth control. Till you got ready to have a baby. And then we find out later, hey, this birth control was actually taking the, that what, that what, the, that child that you would say is a life at conception. It was making sure that child could not play impl- It was making sure that that child would die. Well, I didn't know that. No one told me that. Why didn't anybody tell me that? But the problem wasn't them. It was me. It was us. It was primarily me. But ignorance is no excuse. And so I can't just go, oh, I was ignorant, or oh, we're ignorant, so we'll repent. Oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize there was that many babies, so we'll repent. Or so I don't have to repent. The Bible talks about sins of arrogance in the Old Testament. Remember, the Bible breaks it down. There's sins with the high hand, and there are sins done in ignorance. But you know what they both are? Sins. They're both sins. They're sins that you commit that you know you're committing. You're committing with a high hand. And there are sins that you commit that you didn't know they were a sin. But you know what you still did? You sinned. And my wife and I, we had to repent. And many Christians have had to repent of our, of our ignorance on an issue that we've been loudly standing up against. And it's okay. This is, it is okay for Christians to admit that we've done wrong. It's okay for us to repent. We should be the people who gladly repent. It's okay to admit that you've done wrong, even when those wrongs are grievous wrongs, done unintentionally. What we can't do is what we're tempted to do. This is what we're tempted to do as Christians, to find out that what we've been doing is wrong, so then change the definition of wrong so we don't have to repent. That's what we tend to do. We find out that, oh, this is that, well, then that's not wrong. Now, you, when you ask why that's not wrong, the reason that's not wrong is actually because you did that. Or you're doing that. And so you change the definition of wrong because of what, you, it would be wrong of me to find out, for example, if I'd found out what that birth control does, when someone let me know that this, what these birth control pills were doing or other things, if I were to look at that and go, yeesh, That is doing what I have in the entirety of my life called an abortion, and I've stood against that. But that's what I've been doing and what I want to keep doing. So I'm going to change my definition of what's wrong. That would be a horrible thing for me today. That would be grievous. That would be now going from sinning in ignorance to sinning with a high hand. Going, and it would be, and if, if, you, if you're reading your Old Testament, you'll know the punishment for one, there's punishment for both, but the punishment for sin with the high hand is normally death. And Ameri- you can say America in the 1950s didn't know. They didn't know what was going on in the womb. America in 2022 knows precisely what goes on to the minute for that child in the womb. So America today, we cannot plead ignorance. We can repent of when we've been ignorant before though. And as Christians, it is good for us to look back and say, God, you've brought this to light. I am repenting of my ignorance. And sometimes that's what we need to do. The people, the people of God in Nehemiah didn't read from the law of God and then go, but, but, but uh, they simply said, yeah, we did that. We sinned. And they wept. They just wept because they'd realized their sin. They didn't make excuse for, well, my kings told me to do this. And that was really, you know, Ahab was back here and he was caught. You know, they didn't do any of that. They just said, yeah, I was guilty of that. I was guilty. And for them, you're going to find out most of their guilt was ignorance. They didn't have the law of God. They didn't even know what the law of God said. And they're weeping. They're weeping. And sometimes that's the response we need. Not, not even words sometimes. And sometimes we're so quick to run to words. Sometimes we just need to weep. So some of us, some of us in terms of repentance, what can we do? Some of us are guilty of ignorance. Some of us are of uh, uh, were and are guilty of apathy. I mean, one of the problems uh, for, for American Christians in this story of, of Roe is our apathy to it all. Truth is, if every person who claims to be a Christian were to, would have stood up 50 years ago and said, no, the Supreme Court would have changed like that. Remember how worried we were the Supreme Court was going to change because a, a bunch of weirdos was going to go to the Capitol and scream? You know, we were worried that, what's the Supreme Court going to do? Are they going to come out with that leaked decision? Is that actually going to happen? Or are they going to change their mind? We were worried that that Target might put enough pressure on the Supreme Court to get them to change their mind. Imagine if every Christian 50 years ago had gotten on a bus. I don't even know if they had planes back then. Had gotten on a bus. I'm just kidding. I know they didn't. Uh, And flown to the Capitol and stood outside the Supreme Court and said, no. And if the, even if the Supreme Court said, we're going to do it anyway, would have walked home and said, well, we're not going to listen to you. We don't care what you say. <laughs> if the American church had stood up then, we wouldn't be 60 million plus lives where we are now. It wouldn't have happened. I mean, when I look at my life, I've only visited the abortion mill the last couple of years of my life. I've driven by... You know, the area that this abortion mill was didn't know anything about it. Didn't know it was there. I wasn't there pleading for it. their mothers going every day there to kill their children. I never I never went up to say, you know, don't. Don't. It's only been a few years. I mean I've known about abortion since I was young. I've known There had to be a sense of apathy, an apathy that I've had to repent of. You've heard me. Repent of my apathy. And as American Christians, one of the things we have to do post this momentous day is to repent of our apathy. We also need to repent of our compromise. As American Christians, we've allowed the spirit of the age to guide how we think more than the word of God. To guide how we think, we've allowed what we know to be the truth of God and God's standard, we've allowed ourselves to water it down to make it more palatable to the world around us. And if Christians will try and make murder more palatable, we'll be willing to make anything more palatable to this world. If Christians are willing to compromise on the murder of children and say, okay, okay, I'll give you this exception or I'll give you that exception, I wish I didn't have to, but I will. Well, what no wonder the world's taking exception after exception after exception. And they're just, change, they're just changing the line. So they take our exceptions and they move the line here. And then they want to move the line again. But we've already given in on the exception. So they just create another exception. And we follow that one and that one until the, the, the world has moved the line and the church has done it just piecemeal the whole time. As Christians, we need to recognize that we're guilty of, of, of compromise. I mean, we even know know today that that states that talk about how they've uh, abolished abortion, all of them allow exceptions where you can choose to treat a baby uh, as less equal to other human beings. All of them allow some exception to that. They don't just say, just treat them like a human. That's all we ask. You don't have to make any new law. You don't have to do anything different. Just treat them like every other human being. All of them have... Treat them like every other human being, except in this situation, except here, except if their dad did this, except if this happened, except if this is going on, then you don't have to treat them like a person. There still remains the problem of compromise. And part of that compromise is our fault because we've allowed compromise. The church of God has not loudly stood upon the word of God. The other thing we can repent of is the fact that we have to recognize that abortion is just one of many ills in our society. Transgenderism, gay mirage, rampant premarital sex, divorce, celebrating adultery, all these things are what happens in our society, all of them. Roe may have been our nation's worst sin, but it certainly wasn't our nation's only sin, and we need to confess that. We don't want to be people who go, oh, Roe is ended, so or Roe is gone, so now America is back to being awesome. We've got to confess our nation is plagued by sins. And we've got to confess that. We've got to repent and weep. Just like the people of God here did, just like they did in Nehemiah 8. What happened when they read the Word of God? What happened when they saw who they were based on the Word of God? When God's Word was held up to them like a mirror, what did they do? They repented. They repented of their part in the problem. We need to repent for our personal sins, we need to repent for our national sins, we need to repent for our place. In what has taken place. But repentance wasn't the end of the story for the people of God. And that's what we're going to see next. Look at what happened. After the repentance and the weeping, what happened next is they rejoiced. This is going to seem like a weird juxtaposition. This is going to seem like something, wait, wait, wait. How do you go from weeping to the very next moment rejoicing? But We're going to see it's actually a very important thing for the people of God to do. After the repentance and the weeping, they rejoice. Now, you're going to see, at first, they don't even want to rejoice. Because their sin was so great. At first, they didn't even want to rejoice. They just wanted to weep. Ezra is going to have to make them rejoice. Look at what happens, beginning in verse 10. So they're weeping, they're crying. He says, verse 10, He said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people. They're all weeping over their sin. The Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words, That we're declared to them. So the people have seen their sin. They've stared it in the face. And just the, the recognition of sin has led them to weeping. Right now, all the people of God have done in this moment is read the word of God. And they've recognized there's a problem. And just that simple victory. Israel, behold the word. That simple victory. Just knowing what God said. not They haven't even done anything about it yet. They've just seen the word of God and repented, repented of their sin. Even that was enough for God to say to the people, go and rejoice. It's a special day. It's a holy day. I'll say this. Roe has been footstooled. I say that going from Psalm 110. We wanted to sing Psalm 110 but we decided to sing something else. Christ has footstooled Roe. One wicked decision in our country's history is no more. One enemy of Christ has fallen and found the place that all Christ's enemies will find the grave. Now, Roe was not the only enemy of God, not even the only enemy of God in the horror of abortion, but she was an enemy. The name of Roe is a name that stood for an enemy against God. And, and she now lies dead. And that's important. Think about uh, One that this compares to as I was reading through uh, Scripture in this is the story of Jezebel. Jeze- even now, I mean, certainly in the first century, Revelation tells us, Revelation 2, about Jezebel, the spirit of Jezebel. Even now, when I say the name Jezebel, no one goes, oh, what a great name for a little girl. No one does that. Why? Because you hear the name Jezebel and you think, eh, enemy of God. And the same thing was true of Roe. If I said the name Roe, you would think enemy of God. There's going to come a day when people will still remember the name Jezebel, but will not think of the name Roe. Roe will be gone. We still may be battling issues of abortion. We still may be dealing with other areas of justice. But Roe will be no more. You know it's funny is when when in the story of Jezebel, it's it's interesting. So you've got Jezebel, this enemy of God, this famous enemy of God, and, and her death. Do you remember what happened at her death? Her death was a time of rejoicing when she died. They rejoice at the death of Jezebel. It's, it's Do you remember what Jehu did after he executed Jezebel? Do you remember what he did? It's going to sound so similar to what they did in Nehemiah. It says, he executed Jezebel. Then Jehu went in and ate and drank. That's the, that's the sentence right after he executed Jezebel. He executes Jezebel and he goes in and he eats and he drinks. Just like the people here. Why? Because Jezebel is dead. Now, the nation of Israel was far from pure after. If you continue to read the story after Jezebel, there are going to be more chapter stories in chapter, all the stories after Jezebel's death in chapter two of, or not chapter two in Second Kings. All of the stories about fixing more of the things wrong with the nation, more of the problems that were also there with Jezebel. But Jezebel was dead a famous enemy of God. And for that, Jehu rejoiced. He went in and he ate and he drank because Jezebel is dead. Still problems in Judah. Still still problems related to Jezebel herself and what she did that he's going to have to deal with. Still implications from Jezebel's life that are still seeded into his country. But she's gone. She has been footstooled by the king. Roe is dead. Her demise is hanging from the walls. It's written across your social media. It'll It'll be screamed about in your cities, either for joy or in terror. But she is dead. And for that, we rejoice. Because of that, we eat the fat... We drink the sweet wine, and we make sure that everyone has something so they can celebrate with us. And we're not afraid of the days ahead. Why? For the same reason he said they were not to be afraid. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. We have no re- So, so we, they have no reason to fear what's going to happen to them. in Nehemiah, as they're reading, says, go eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow you're not going to die. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. The God that you once rebelled against has kept you alive by His grace to show you His word so you can obey. He has defeated your enemies. He's caused your enemies to send you home. That God is your strength. So you don't have to fear what your enemies are going to do. I don't care who's gathering at Washington. I don't care who's going to be around the BOK on June 30th. I don't care why because they will not win because they are not my strength the joy of the lord is our strength the kingdom of god that killed this enemy will kill the next one too and rejoicing is important as god's people sometimes when you go through a moment a time of horrible sin you can think that I can't rejoice I shouldn't rejoice and you want to wear sackcloth and ashes for days and we want to go how long should we continue to be sad till we can go yay and you're going yay and then you're saying anybody else yay yet okay I'll hold back on my yay tell other people yay with me rejoicing is important look at what happens here it is so important I mean this isn't like they wept and wept for days and then Ezra came in and said stop weeping start rejoicing they're weeping, and Ezra and the priests think it's so important to rejoice that they stop the grief of the people. They halt their grief. Imagine if you're repenting and you're, you know, imagine if, do you, you, you ever used to go to like uh, churches where they used to have the altar thing, the altar call, and you go up, you'd like people would go to the front and they they they'd, they'd, they'd cry or or whatever and uh i i I, can you imagine if someone like was doing that and they were confessing their sin at the and there's all sorts of problem with with the word altar here i don't want to get anywhere near that uh let's say they come to the steps and they cry and they're crying there can you imagine if someone came and tapped them on the shoulder and said hey hey quit crying it's time to be happy uh we'd be like what in the world are you doing like someone weeping over their sin and they're broken because of their sin and they're like hey We're on to the last song, and it's a happy one. We can't have you up here weeping. That's what the priests do to the people here. They have heard the word of God, and they say, Hey, we're ending on an upbeat tune. Can you quit that? Uh, they said, "Go home and eat the fat, which is the best part, right? Eat the best part. Drink your, get your steaks out of the fridge, right? It's not time for ground beef anymore. You know, put up the the rice cordon and the hamburger helper. Like, get out the fat. Drink the sweet wine. It just literally in the Hebrew, it's just the sweet. Uh, so, so uh, drink your fruit juice. Drink the drink your good stuff. And and." If you've got any extra and you see someone that doesn't have steak, because they're a pastor and they got seven kids and they can't give, and no one eats steak unless it's in the middle of the night and all the kids are asleep, right? You go and you make sure they've got some. Because what is everybody going to do right now? You make sure everybody is rejoicing. I think one thing we can do is we can forget, we can, maybe because we haven't repented in so long, remember these people haven't repented in centuries. There's been centuries of disobeying God. We're going to see that in just a second. We can get so thinking that I need to weep more. I need to repent more. I can't pour out enough. We can kind of sound like Martin Luther before he became a Christian. He's like, I haven't, I haven't repented enough of my sins. I need to purge myself more and more and more and more. There can come a time where, we, where there never is a moment for rejoicing. And yet here in this story, they're weeping, rightly weeping. They have sinned. They're part of sin. They're rightly weeping. And God stops their weeping and says, now's the time to rejoice. Now's the time to to go home and rejoice, to celebrate, to to feast. And the people did. The people did that. They went home and they rejoiced. So we've got repentance. We've got rejoicing. But what we don't have is time. But we're going to go through it anyway. What we don't have is resting. We don't. I want you to notice this about the people. Look at uh, verse 13, the next verses. So the people people do not rest after this moment. The people see what God has told them to do, they confess it, they rejoice, and then they get to work. Verse 13, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study uh, the words of the law. And they found Uh, They found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem, go out to the hills, bring branches of olives, wild olive, myrtle, palm, other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God, in the square of the water gate, which remember is where they are gathered, in the square at the gate of Ephraim, which is the Israelite nation that had been destroyed. And all the assembly of those who would returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel, uh, to that day, The people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. So the people read from the law. They repented. They celebrated. And then as they're continuing to read from the law, they see that they've still got work left to do. Just like like with with Jehu and, and Israel after the death of Jezebel, Judah was not a perfect nation here in Nehemiah 8. They realized they still had things to do. So they saw what was left to do and what did they do? Well, they didn't rest. They didn't say, Whoo, glad that's done. Glad we we found the law again. Now we're, we're cool to just chill for another couple centuries, right? They went to work. And we must get to work too. Because the truth is, the end of Roe was not our goal. The goal of the American church was not, We want the Roe decision overturned. And once the Roe decision is overturned, then we're done. Our goal is for America to bow the knee to Christ. Well, so what sort of work awaits us? Well, we know this. Abortion is not ended. We're post-Roe, but we're not post-abortion. The death of Roe is just the footstooling of one enemy. For many, Roe was just a big straw man that people could hide behind. That the government could say, I'd love to do something, but I can't because of Roe. Well, now Roe's gone. She's dead. You can't hide behind it, Jezebel anymore. No one who is hiding behind Jezebel for the committing of their evils. None of the priest said, well, the queen's telling us to do it. None of them can say, I mean, when Jezebel's hanging dead on the wall, none of them can say, she told me to do it. That's what Rose's doing right now. She's like this. She's dead. She's no longer a straw man. People can hide behind. But she's not the only obstacle. The sad reality is babies still died yesterday. Legally legally murdered with no protection with in many cases more government protection for their killers either the doctors or the mothers than for them the decision itself was not perfect the decision that came down to kill Roe she was killed with an imperfect weapon the decision itself didn't call for the protection of babies in the womb it only said that each state can decide whether or not they want to kill babies in the womb can you imagine again if the Supreme Court had said that each state could decide if black people could be killed or Hispanic people could be killed or women? Federal government has decided that this is a state's responsibility. It, it is wicked to say that states can determine which image bearers have value and which don't. That's wicked. Now, of all the things, you know, I, I love state rights. I do not like the federal government at all. I don't like any bureaucracy. But it is wicked to tell states you can choose whether to kill or not kill your babies. In fact, the U.S. government was even yesterday already was already saying it will try and fight states who try and stop abortion pills from being mailed to their state from the outside. Federal government's already already saying the attorney general was already saying, uh, yeah, you you try and stop abortion. We're going to stop you trying to stop it. Do you remember in December is when it was made permanent that the FDA can now mail these things to people. It used to be that it had to happen at a doctor's office, but conveniently uh, they said, no, now they can just be mailed directly to your home. So what's going to happen now is abortions will be done across the street. They'll be happening across the street from you, not in Planned Parenthoods or, or, or other murder mills. Most Christians, most Christians do not even consider the fact that, that what is bound to happen now is, is the people across the street from them are going to be able to swallow pills that can kill their babies at any moment. And of course, the dangers ahead are still replete. A a different Supreme Court could decide to do something else next time. You know, if someone dies at the wrong time and the wrong person's in political power with the wrong legislatures behind it, it who's to say next time you don't have 6-3 the other way and all of a sudden it's legal again and then all of a sudden it's not. There's so much work for us still to do. We, we cannot let sin hide in even one corner of our nation. We cannot stop until true justice without compromise is the standard for everyone in our land. Equal justice and equal protection for everyone. We will not rest until that happens. Roe may rest in pieces, but we do not rest until that happens. So abortion is still going on. Churches churches have obligations. Churches must encourage and equip mothers to not only keep their babies alive, but to keep and raise their babies. If you know me, I'm not a fan of saying uh, we will adopt your baby, although I say that. Uh, But what what must we recognize? Child abandonment is not the option we want to give to mothers. We need to tell mothers, you can keep your baby and you can be a godly mother and the church must not just provide the resources to take the baby away from the mother. The church must provide the resources to teach that mother to be a godly woman, to raise her child in a godly home and to tell her that if you will join our fellowship, we will do everything to make sure that you and that baby are taken care of both physically, mentally, and spiritually till the day you both die. Not just, hey, you don't want that baby? Give it to us and you can go back to living that horrible life that you're living right now. We need to rescue them both. Is it horrible that adoption costs too much? Yes. Should adoption be less? Yes. Will we adopt a baby if a mom says, I'll kill this baby unless you take it? Yes. But do we go up and say, Abandon your baby to us? No. We tell her, You can do it and we will help you. You do not have to abandon that child. That it would be a sin to abandon your child. It would be a sin to take that child and say, I don't want this child. That would be a sin. If you say, I can't keep this child, that is a lie. You say, I can't afford to raise this child. That is a lie. Why? Because if you come and join with us, we will give you everything you need. We will sell our stuff to take care of you. We're not going to fund some government program. We're not going to outsource it to some group. We're going to give you our stuff. That's what we want to do. Now, if in the meantime, we're collecting those people who are already abandoning their babies and fixing the horrible foster care system, then by all means, let's do that. But let's not forget what the goal is to save child and mother. Because if the mother is considering the murder of her child, they are both in a horrible spiritual place. And we must not set the bar short. Church must help families in their homes. They must foster. They must adopt. They must sell their homes if they need to to help women and children survive. That must be what we're willing to do. That must be that we shouldn't rest until our hearts are ready to do that. Where or if, or if by God's grace, women were to hear what we're willing to do, and we were flooded with 20 women with babies coming in and they've got nothing, we'd, be, we'd better be willing to be like axe and say, hey, some of us are going to have to downsize our homes. We've got to make sure these women we got to make sure these women get jobs, we've got to make sure these babies are taken care of. We've got to do whatever we need to do. That's at least what we've got to be willing to do. And doing anything we can to make sure not just that the babies are not killed, but that the babies are taken care of by the people they're meant to be taken care of, which is their parents. And the chief way we do this, the chief work we get to is we share the gospel. It says, if you remember what they did, it said they were day by day reading from the book of the law. What must we realize? The kingdom of darkness is only ever defeated ultimately by the kingdom of light. It's not defeated by politicians from any political party. It's not defeated by uh, conservatism or progressivism. It's certainly not defeated by communism. Uh, it is only ever defeated by Christ. Christ. And the only way that we will get enough people in office to care enough about the law of God is to get Christ in the hearts of as many people as possible. And if we spend more effort fighting political battles, arguing over political things on Facebook or whatever, moral issues even, than we do sharing the gospel with the neighbor across the street, then we're... We're not recognizing where the sword is going to come from. The sword that is actually... And what we're going to end up happening is another illegitimate sword killing an enemy but creating a new one. Killing the enemy of Roe, creating a new enemy that we've got to deal with. If we don't have them be killed with the the sword of the word of God yielded by Jesus Christ, then all we're going to find is new enemies. And the way you stop that is by sharing the gospel. The Christian church cannot rest until every authority, every grievous law, every injustice is bowing the knee to Christ. And until that day comes, we do not rest. We cannot rest. And the last thing we've got to do, and we see this from their their time of worship, is we have to live Holy lives. What I, mean, what I mean by that is this. We have to live holy lives, not just holy moments. How do we worship God if we want evil to be defeated? We can't just rejoice the day of. We can't just be obedient the day of. We've got to be obedient every day of our... Look at what they did in verse, verse 18. What did these people do? After they've done all this, as they're doing all this, what do they do? Day by day, from the first day... To the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the seven days. On the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So these people, they gathered for the seven days. They read. They obeyed the word. Seven straight days. Now, this seven straight days, this wasn't a revival, right? This wasn't they had a seven-day revival. You know, they had a seven-day revival. This was just obedience. This did what they were supposed to do. And of course, there was more that needed to be done in Israel. The problems in Israel weren't just that they couldn't find their Bibles and they weren't keeping the Feast of Booths. <laughs> so that's, not, that's not all that was wrong in, Israel. Well, you know, why, or in Judah at this point. Why was Judah in exile? Well, they couldn't find the Bible and they weren't keeping the Feast of Booths. That's not all they were doing. Judah was replete with sin. But there is a worshipful plotting for the people of God. A constant pressing back day by day against the kingdom of darkness. If we want to truly worship God, then we can't just really be excited on the big days. We have to be excited and we have to be obedient every day. What does the Bible say though is real celebration? It's real repentance. It's real rejoicing and it's real obedience in every area of the Christian life. We cannot be single issue Christians. We cannot all have our own little hobby horses that are really important to us. For example, even this one. I mean if you if you if you it, <laughs> I, I don't care if you fight tooth and nail to abolish abortion. If you're a bad parent, that's not a victory. It doesn't matter if I, uh, it doesn't matter if, if, if I adopt all the kids that will, thankfully and, and rightly, be born from this eventual uh, end of darkness. If I adopted all of the kids ever to be born. Because abortion was stopped in any state. If I said, I'll take them all, give them all to me. And I took them all. But I wasn't a godly father. That would not be a victory for the name of Christ. If I I allowed my wife to be a domineering wife and I a weak husband, that wouldn't be a victory for the cause of Christ. If I allowed my children to be disobedient and I didn't raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that wouldn't be a victory. I couldn't look at my life and say, look at all that I've done. The Christian life isn't just being obedient one area. None of the Judeans, none of the people of Israel could walk out and say, look at me, I kept the Feast of Booths. Perfect. None of them did that. What did they realize? They were day after day in the Word of God because it wasn't about just having a holy moment. It was about living a holy life. It's not just about a victory in one issue. It's a Christian who seeks victory in every issue. And we are all myopic in so many ways. We all have issues that speak to us. We all have things that get us riled up. We all have things we wish were fixed. And we've got to be careful it's an injustice and a sin yes cry out for it to be fixed but your eyes had better be fixed on yourself seeing what other areas of my life do I need to bow the knee to Christ because what we're tempted to do is sell out in one area because we know we're ignoring another and we know we can get so excited about how well we're doing in this and the reason we're doing that is because we're failing in that and I can't look at that I can't see how I'm failing my kids. I can't see how I'm failing my wife. I can't see how I'm failing my church. So I'll sell out really hard on this. I'll be a big time servant to this. But I'll fail the Lord in all this other stuff. That is not a victory. If we want to worship the Lord, we worship him not just with holy moments, not just on one issue. We worship God by living holy lives, not just Sunday, but day after day after day. What do we see the people of God do when an evil is dealt with? Even something as evil as the loss of God's word for possibly centuries what do we see them do? They repent. They rejoice. They don't rest. And then they live holy lives. Let's pray. I encourage you, of course, to go back and read Nehemiah 8 more. Chew on the Word of God. But if you wanted a biblical example of what it looks like to worship God after a day of victory for the kingdom... Whether it's Jehu and the slang of Jezebel and he ate and he drank he went inside and he ate and he drank. or it's the people of God here. What must what if we want to have a full celebration? if we don't want to have one that sells out too much on one side or the other, but that is biblical in, in every step of how we feel, and how do I handle this? How do I process this? Real celebration of God's people involves repentance. In the death of Roe, what repentance, what confession needs to come from your mouth and your heart? Would you say that you've perfectly handled the issue of abortion? Even if, it's, even if it's stuff from the past that you've just never really confessed to the Lord. You've never repented of, you know, years of ignorance that you had. You haven't confessed your apathy. You haven't confessed the the times you've been willing to compromise to look good or whatever. What do you need to repent? Take a moment and let's repent. We can't have 50 years, 60 million babies uh, plus murdered and, and let's not repent and even weep for that simple fact. Maybe even just right now thinking, when's the last time you wept over the grievous sin of your nation? just wept, not got mad, not that you shouldn't, but wept. And then I want you to rejoice. Take time right now and praise God. Praise God that a great enemy against God has been killed. Roe is dead. She is dead. And may that name disappear into the annals of history and even be forgotten. May she live the demise of Jezebel rejoice rejoice that God has won that the kingdom advances that his enemy, all his enemies will be footstooled if Roe has raised up another enemy she will be footstooled too and Christ will reign until all his enemies are put under his feet rejoice that that's true just take a moment Pull yourself even out of your weeping, even if you're right now still thinking about all the things you have to confess and you're still sad over this reality. You need your head lifted up and you need to realize, like Ezra had to tell the people, look, you need to take a time and rejoice. Don't steal from God's glory. The slaying of this enemy. There might be another enemy, but he knows that and he'll slay it too. And then don't rest. What work do you still need to be doing? What can you still do going forward so that in the future, there's not things, you have, not apathy you have to confess of next time, not ignorance you have to confess of next time. What changes do you need to make to your own life? What actions do you need to do? What are going to be your steps going forward to not rest? And then live a holy life. Every area of your life needs to be footstooled to Jesus Christ as well. Every area of your life needs to bow the knee to Him. Is there any part of your life that you are ignoring? It might be sitting in the pew next to you. It might be at home. It might be at work. It might be sitting at a pew across, across from you. What area of personal holiness do you need to make sure that you're going to live if you really, really want to celebrate the glory of, of God? If you really want to worship him, not just a holy moment, it's a holy life. Father, we we come to you today. And God, we are so sorry for our place in this. Our voice would probably be much greater than we even think it would be. We have not been. We have acted as if we did not really believe those babies are dying. That those are souls who will never be born. We are guilty, Father, of what we accuse the other side of being, which is not really treating those children in the womb as equal to any two-year-old or 20-year-old. Forgive us for that, Father. And it is grace that you did more probably than our hearts deserved. And, Father, we repent of our ignorance. We repent of our apathy. We repent of all the times we've been guilty of compromise, even tempted to compromise, Even if we don't compromise now, the years that we did accept compromise and how many people that we talked to that heard us accept compromise and we haven't been able to go back to them and say, I take that back. I take that back. But Father, we don't stay weeping. We rejoice. And we will eat the fat and we will drink the sweet wine and we will give to anyone who has need. We will rejoice and we will call our friends to rejoice with us. And we will rejoice in you and in your strength And Father, we will not rest, and we will not rest not just on this issue, but on every issue in our lives, Father. We will live holy lives, not just holy moments for you, not just Sundays for you, not just these great days for you, Father. We will live every day for you and for your glory. Please help us to do that. Help us to be a people like those in Nehemiah. Help us to make much of your name. Help us to weep. Help us to rejoice, help us to get to work, to not rest, and help us to do that in every area, every day of our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.